Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you all again. Let me pray for our message this morning. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you do not leave us as we are. We thank you that you refine through your spoken word. And so we do ask that you would do this now, that you would refine all of us, you refine CFC Church, that you would build up their life together, their worship, their witness, that the watching world would see that here is a place where just a, a, a bit of Jesus' glory shines brightly on this earth. So we do ask that you would be glorified by all that we say and do and think uh, in respond to your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> it is uh, notoriously difficult to preach about money. It's a sensitive topic. In fact, uh, sensitive just to talk about uh, in general. We have all sorts of cultural do's and don'ts for talking about money. One of my, one of my good friends got a promotion, and, it came, and he told me it came with a, a, a sizable raise. And I said, oh, congratulations. How much are you making now? He said, I'm not going to tell you that. Oh, I'm sorry. I, f- I forgot. We, we don't do that. So it, it, all sorts of do's and don'ts about talking about money. And it makes it doubly awkward to hear about money uh, from, the ver- from the pulpit. Very difficult to preach about money. That's why I came to a different church to preach about money. Uh, you know, might be wondering, why, why would a guest preacher come? And why would you pick this? And you'll give a one-off. You preach anything you want. Lucas said I could preach anything you want. I promise. He didn't say, please, come talk to them about money. You've got you to gotta fix them. He didn't say that. I got to pick whatever I want. So why would I pick talking about money? Well, the short answer is God still says stuff about money. So we're going to listen to some of what he has to say. Our text this morning comes from Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. So I invite you to turn there. I invite you to turn there. I would like you to have your Bibles open the whole time. Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. And here we'll find a a singular, very straightforward application for Christian Fellowship Church. You can boil it down to four words. Bring the full tithe. That's the exhortation to you today. Bring the full tithe. Now we just need to understand it. Now in the passage, if you haven't been in Malachi in a while, in the passage immediately before ours, in Malachi 3, verses 1 through 5, God says that he is fed up with the people's complaints. And in response, he's going to come in person to address them. He said when he comes, he would be a fire. And that fire would both consume people and refine other people. But that raises the question, what determines whether or not someone is refined or consumed? 3.1 says that the children of Jacob are not consumed. But back in 2.10, it said Judah and Israel had been faithless. They had committed abomination. 3.3 says that he's going to refine the Levites, the priests bringing the offerings. But back in chapters 1 and 2, the priests got some of the first and most stinging critiques. He says that those who swear falsely and commit adultery will be consumed. But he explicitly calls out Judah for those exact crimes in the past two chapters. The point is, the people being refined are sinners. Sinners are consumed, but it is also sinners who are refined. I mean, they wouldn't need refining if they weren't sinners. So God, the consuming fire, was coming to consume some sinners and refine other sinners. So which sinners are refined and which are destroyed? Now remember, the the verse numbers and headings, they're they're additions. They help us reference the Bible quickly. But they didn't exist in the original. 
Our text today is a direct continuation of Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Part of the purpose of our text is to answer the question, who is consumed and who is refined? So this is critical. Will you be refined by God or will you be consumed by God? This morning's text will help you answer the question, am I going to face God's judgment for my sin or will I be delivered and be cleansed of my sin? Who is consumed? Who is refined? Malachi 3, 6-12 answers this question and the answer it gives, at least at one point, centers on tithing. Oh no, money. Does whether or not I am consumed by God and His wrath depend on how much money I give? That's an uncomfortable thought. But if we pay attention to our text, we will hear good news in this prophet of the Old Testament. Malachi invites you to experience Jesus, the Lord who came and who is coming again, as a refining fire, not a consuming one. In fact, this text goes beyond the Lord's refining work and makes big promises about blessing. Promises of blessing connected to tithing can also make us uncomfortable for different reasons. But let's let's work through it together. So Malachi 3, 6 through 12. I'll read the text in its entirety. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So in the preceding verse, 3-5, God describes his coming wrath against sinners. And in 6-7, through he addresses how and why anyone survives that coming wrath. Our passage opens with God providing the bedrock foundation that exists under any answer about how one is not consumed by his wrath. Malachi answers that question in a few different ways. But here, in verses 6 through 7, we have the truth at the very base of the gospel, the foundation of the good news. The first answer, the foundational answer to the question, how can man avoid being consumed by God's wrath, is not to be found in man at all. It is in God and his character, because I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. The reason some are spared God's consuming fire, in other words, final judgment, the reason some escape the judgment of verse 5 is because I, Yahweh, do not change. How does that work? What's the logic? Why are God's people preserved by God's unchanging nature? How does God's unchangeableness equal salvation for some? You see, we, we, we see this logic. It actually appears quite often in Scripture around a, a complex of verses where God talks about being God and not a man, not changing. 
fact, Hosea said the reason that God's saving love would win out in the end over the waywardness of his beloved was because I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I am God, therefore I will not come in wrath. How does that work? Isn't the fact that he is God reason why he can come in wrath? But he says, because I am God and not a man, I will not come in wrath. Want to understand it? We look at the, maybe the clue back the first time we heard that statement in Numbers. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The people have been turning aside from God for generation after generation, right? It says in our text, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. The only reason they persist in existing is because God persists in his purposes. God's love in Hosea was effective. It's one of the major themes of that prophetic book. In Hosea, God reveals himself as a faithful husband, but also as a wooing husband. God describes himself as unable to toss aside his people because of his great love. And in Hosea, the focus is on God's means of doing the heart change work that the other prophets talk about. God will draw his people tenderly, passionately into his loving embrace. Salvation is indeed supernatural heart surgery, but it can also be described in the Bible as being won over by love. Hosea contains some of the most jarring uh, switches from oracles of judgment to oracles of salvation, and in the process it contains some of the most vivid language about the intensity of God's love for his people. And it's in one of the most powerful passages that we find that parallel to our text, where God says, I am God and not a man. And in the whole context of the book, that his point is, I'm able to effectually woo my people. Unlike man, frail, often failing, God will always succeed in winning over his unfaithful bride. His call is effectual. It's like a lion's roar from Hosea, or the most penetrating love poetry, also in Hosea. That's why God cites his godness as the explanation for why his people will be saved. Because he has a purpose and it cannot be thwarted because of who he is. He's formed a people for his own purposes. He desired to create a people for himself, a bride, a kingdom that would know all his goodness and love in perfect fellowship and joy. And what God started, he is going to finish. And he is able to finish. I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed unlike us, who are so fickle, so prone to being tossed to and fro by the things going on around us, to changing our minds at the drop of a hat, God is unchangeable. He's solid. He cannot be defeated. He does not start something, then get discouraged and beaten up and then quit. We do that all the time. Life beats you hard enough, you'll quit. In the face of a repeatedly rebellious people, it might seem like God would just give up. But he's God. He can win over his people. He can save them. He can complete all his good plans for them. How are any not to be consumed by God's righteous wrath when Jesus comes again? It's because the Lord God is unchangeable. He will purify his people from their sins because that is what he set out to do in the beginning. He made a promise and he will keep his promise. He is the only being in the universe who can always keep his promises. Jesus' death was once for all, meaning it need not be repeated. The death of Christ is enough. It's perfect to cover all your transgressions. The righteous life of Christ is sufficient to merit your inclusion in the kingdom. 
That means if you trust Jesus, you will experience him as a refining fire, not a consuming one, because Jesus is committed to refining you. His death bought it and guarantees it. That's where you look first. Right? Malachi starts with the very nature, the power, the character of God. So we start there too. When you struggle over assurance of salvation, you look first to the bedrock of salvation. Yahweh is unchanging and absolutely committed to his promises. Jesus Christ lived and died for you. The good news about Jesus is not better yourself and then Jesus will welcome you into heaven. It is Jesus is absolutely committing to saving sinful people that cannot better themselves and he does not change. He does not swerve from his commitment to save you even as you fail him repeatedly. The same purpose Jesus had for you when you first felt drawn to him, felt really strong in the faith, Jesus maintains even as your affection grows cold and you fall into sin. Jesus saves sinners. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So that's the bedrock. You have to have that bedrock first before you read the rest of the text or you're going to misunderstand it. God doesn't call out to people and say, if you do X, you will not be consumed. He says their salvation is rooted in him. Therefore, he acts as a refining fire to his people. Your salvation is founded on the righteous life of Christ and his sacrificial death for you. And after establishing the bedrock, the foundation, God then calls out to sinful people. Look at the back half of verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So we have to understand this call in verse 7. This is the fulfillment of God being committed to preserving his people, right? So we saw that in verse 6. I'm committed to preserving my, my people. This call is the fulfillment of that. He calls out to his people, meaning he, he uses his word to invite them into something better. He uses his word to be a refining fire, to refine them. God uses the means of his word to refine his people. So his people are the ones who are refined by this word, who, who this word affects, right? And that's another answer. Who's not consumed? It's who is responding in their sin to the word God offers out to them. Now, what's the response God is looking for in these verses? In verse 7, we've got this language of repentance, right? Turn back. God is inviting the people to repent. In other words, admit their fault here. Come back to him. Then you look at the rest of verse 7. But you say, how shall we return? Right? That question is not asking, what do we need to do to return? Like, oh, yes, Lord, I need to repent. Tell me what to do. The question at the verse of, end of verse 7 is them denying the need to return. Right? He's like, what do you mean return? How can we return? We've never left. If you haven't read Malachi in a while, you'll remember that all throughout the book, we see that the people were nominally followers of God at this point in their history. They were participating in public temple worship regularly. They weren't worshiping Baal. They were giving lip service to the one true God. But in the process of their lip service, they were actually failing to honor God, to respect his name, to glorify him. One of God's main complaints in Malachi is that the people's worship was actually a terrible witness to the watching world. The people were actually dishonoring God with their worship. The people were despising Yahweh with costless worship. They were bringing animals that were lame or sick or that they had found dead already. The priests were despising the Lord by approving the people's worship. They were, yeah, that's fine. They, the priests were supposed to teach the people, but instead they were showing partiality to their lame sacrifices because it was beneficial for the priests to have the people's favor. Like, I want you to like me, so yeah, I'll, everything you're doing is fine. And the people were despising the Lord by being totally unfaithful in their ethical relationships to each other, particularly in marriage. 
And then they still showed up to worship like nothing happened. Seven times in this short book, God summarizes their failure as a lack of fear for him, a lack of honor for his name. The very end of verse 5 summarizes the wicked as those who do not fear God's name. It was definitional of the people who had addressed throughout the book. You do not fear my name. You do not honor me. You do not glorify me. So their question, how shall we return to you? Right, that, that shows you their heart. It betrays a stubborn heart. should be a, a, a warning to us today. You can be at church every Sunday and actually be despising God, thinking, I don't need to return to God. I'm right here. How shall we return to you? Now, God could have answered by citing the specific sins he's already addressed in the book of Malachi, but he raises a new, related issue, but a new issue. And he does this quite intentionally, as we'll see. He raises the perfect issue, the perfect singular issue, the issue of tithes and contributions. Look at verses 8 and 9. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. God says it's, it's an absurdity to imagine that men would dare rob him, yet that is exactly what the people were doing by neglecting to tithe, neglecting to bring their designated contributions and gifts to the temple. What God wanted for, for them was for them to bring the full tithe. Bring everything you have been commanded to bring in the way you have been commanded to bring it. So, so what is God asking of them? What is God asking of you? What is your responsibility from this sermon? How does God want to refine you if you believe in Jesus? Well, what were the actual laws that defined and regulated tithing? What were the main points? What was the rationale? By and large, the Western church tends to be weak on the Old Testament law. Right? Leviticus, famous for being a killer of the read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plans. That's a shame, as we'll see shortly. I think tithe is not an unfamiliar word to most people. I mean, I think if you ask the average person on the street what a tithe is, the fair number of them would be able to say, yeah, the tithe is the money you're supposed to give to church. I think a good number of people would even be able to tell you, like, it's a tenth, right? You're supposed to give a tenth of your income to the church. So you get this general working definition of a tithe. Ten percent of your income that you're obligated to give to God. That definition is simplistic to the point of being wrong. Right? It's a bad definition. We all know that sometimes when we explain things, we have to you know, simplify. We can't capture all the nuances. But that definition just misses too much of what the tithe was all about in Scripture. So let's actually go back. Look at Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where we find all the lies about, laws about tithing. And we'll read them. I won't, you don't have to turn there, but I'll uh, read as we go. Because we need to fill in some of the details and maybe even dispel a few uh, misconceptions. So let's look at the very first law, the very first law mentioned in Scripture about tithing. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. From Leviticus 27. It's a pretty simple summary. You tithed from everything you produced. You took a tenth. From everything. Now, you also had other contributions and occasions for tithing. So if you actually do the math, it works out to being more than a tenth. But that's not the main point. Here's the main point. From that law, the tithe was said to be holy, set apart for the Lord, for Yahweh. It's His. You take 10% and you give it to Him. But the key question is how. What does it mean to give something to God? 
How do you give money or, or crops or animals in particular to God? What does it mean to give something to the Lord who says in Psalms, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So how do you give something to God? When we keep reading in the law, we find the answer very explicitly. Listen from Deuteronomy 12. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or of the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Do you hear it? Two parts. There were two parts to it. Here's another one from just a little bit later in Deuteronomy 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So did you catch it? How did you set apart your tithe to the Lord? You ate it. You ate it. Well, how on earth is you getting to eat your tithe, giving it to God? If you answer that question, you will understand the tithe. What Yahweh was calling people to do with the tithe was to give him their trust and their allegiance and their heart. Let's consider how eating, you getting to eat your tithe does those three things. Trust, number one, trust. You have to remember, this is an agrarian society. Eating meat and produce might not seem like a sacrifice to us, but it was to them. Eating meat was a relative rarity, only for special occasions. You wouldn't just kill a calf or a sheep. Those were work animals, wool-producing animals. You wouldn't wantonly just eat your produce. You'd store it, you'd hoard it, you'd sell it for money. That's a natural tendency to regularly, by command of God, have to take the first of your crop, the best of the fruit, and the firstborn of your animals, and then to consume it. Well, that would take faith. Trust that God would provide. The tithe purposely forced a type of loss so that you would trust the Lord. You know, many, many foster children hoard food. You give them a bag of chips and they might eat one and then hide the rest or they store all the stuff you know, under, under their pillow. Many of these kids come from situations where they did not know how long it would be before they got their next meal. That trauma creates a, a fear that's not easily overcome. The tithe law is kind of like God the foster parent saying to the foster child, you eat that whole candy bar and you enjoy it. And you trust me, I promise there will be another one. Two, it's also giving God your allegiance. You only ate it in a special place where God made his name to dwell. In other words, in Jerusalem, at the temple, dedicating it all to Yahweh. You couldn't eat the tithe at home. You had to go to the temple. You had to trek there. You had to make the journey. You had to consciously remember, God gave me this bounty. It belongs to him. I'm bringing it back to him. The law that the tithe was eaten only in the temple area is particularly designed to be a visible sign. It was a public testimony to the watching world. The whole law imaged the tribute paid by vassal kingdoms to their superior kingdoms. You had to come as a symbol that you owed allegiance to the Lord. And you had to eat your tithe before him. Sending a message to you and anyone watching, I belong to the one true God. All that I have is from him, and I give it back to him by trustingly eating it while declaring my allegiance to him. 
You didn't have your party just anywhere. You had your party at Yahweh's house because you belong to him and the food belongs to him. Connected to this, your tithe supported the ongoing temple ministry, right? You didn't eat the whole time. You wouldn't be able to, right? If I turn 10% of my income into, you know, 10% of my monthly check, if I turn that into food, I wouldn't be able to eat that in one go. And I mean, I like to eat, but I wouldn't be able to eat that in one go. It's too much. There's a lot left over. The majority is usually left over. And because it's a lot, the majority portion that was left over was given to the Levites and to the priests as part of how the people supported the existence of the temple. To the Levites, God says, I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So the tithe did indeed support and sustain the ministry. In Nehemiah 13.10, we see how the people failing to bring the tithe to the Levites and the temple singers mean they had to go and find other jobs. They couldn't be devoted to the temple service. And that was a serious issue because then there is no temple service. The tithe was a public show of allegiance. It visibly demonstrated Yahweh's ownership of the people and it maintained the existence of the official worship ministry so there could be temple and priests so the people would have a place to publicly display their allegiance to the Lord. And then number three, the tithe was also giving God your heart. You shall eat them, you shall eat your tithe before the Lord your God in the place where the, that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Right? Did you hear that? That's a command. You are to come and rejoice. Enjoy getting to eat this special meal. Enjoy eating without worrying about the cost, eating meat, eating the fruits and the grain and the oil. Celebrate before God. Fellowship and enjoy God's presence and his provision and his goodness. The passage continues in Deuteronomy. And if the way is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. If the way is too far to carry all the stuff, just sell it, turn it into money, and then when you get there, get your favorite food. Get your favorite wine or beer. I mean, I'm a Baptist, but that's what it says. Get whatever you want, eat it, and drink it before me, and rejoice. That's why verse 10 of our passage says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. What does he mean, there may be food in my house? Food for who? Food for the people bringing it. That, that there might be food, uh, food in my house means that there might be food eaten in my house, that you might eat together in my house. He wants eating and fellowshipping and celebrating in his house. God wants his house to be a place of joy together with him. Earlier in Malachi, they said, God says, you are despising the table of the Lord. One of the ways they were doing that, they bring things that no one wanted to eat. We found this dead carcass, we'll sacrifice that, and no one's going to stay there and eat that. And so there's no fellowship and eating together in the Lord's house. Right? God just wants your money? No. So much more. God wants your heart. He wants your trust, your allegiance, and your joy. And so the tithe was the portion set aside of your income, usually more than 10%, that was set apart to the Lord. And by traveling, taking that 10% or more, traveling to the Lord's temple and then consuming it in celebration and giving the rest to support the temple, you you demonstrated your trust in the Lord to provide for you. You demonstrated your allegiance to him as your only Lord and you enjoyed fellowship with him. 
And you remember the stated reason for all this. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Before the Lord your God in the place he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. You do this to learn to fear God. So you see, the tithe was meant to address the very foundational issue of dishonoring God's name. Because remember, back in Malachi 3, verse 5, what was his summary? You do not fear my name. That's why he brings up the tithe here. Because that was the point of the tithe, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. To trust, to ally yourself, to enjoy God is to honor and respect his name. The more you participate, the more you give him glory, the closer you get to God. Jesus, the Lord incarnate, he wants your trust, your allegiance, and your enjoyment of him. He wants you to draw near to him in faith. He wants you to trust him, to take care of you, to acknowledge him as Lord, and to rejoice in his goodness to you. So all this, it makes the tithe, right, the perfect thing. It's the perfect law, the perfect issue for God to cite as his example, as the picture of how the people need to return to him. How shall we return to you? We haven't gone anywhere. Yes, you have. You do not trust the Lord to provide for you. You do not demonstrate wholehearted public allegiance, and you do not enjoy him. So Yahweh says, bring the full tithe. Get back to the fullness in those commands, and so learn to honor and glorify me. Learn to fear me. Come back to me. Trust me. Acknowledge me. Enjoy me. And now consider how God continues in the rest of the passage, verses 10 through 12. It's kind of surprising. It can even make us theologically uncomfortable. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now he says, bring it. Test me. See, I will open the windows of heaven. I will rain down blessings on you. The rest of the nations will see and recognize that you are blessed by the God of heaven. Now, hold on. Is this the prosperity gospel? Give to God and then he will give to you. Isn't this a promise of prosperity in return for obedience? Right? Sounds like the huckster preachers on TV. You'll become materially successful and prosper if you give enough. Can we expect material prosperity in return for our obedience? Does this apply to Christian Fellowship Church? Well, yes and no. If we understand this promise in its biblical context, we can indeed apply it to ourselves. But it is not a promise for material prosperity in response to obedience. You remember, at the time, the people of God were constituted. They were organized as a nation. And God did indeed promise to bless that nation as a whole in response to obedience. The book of Malachi mentions a couple times that the people as a whole were experiencing poor yields. They weren't doing well agriculturally, economically. God says in our passage, you are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. The reason why things aren't going well for your nation is because of your national disobedience to me. Not because of some individual one-to-one correspondence between your obedience and the amount of material blessing that you get. Right? Remember, the nation of Israel was meant to image things. It was to be a picture to point forward, to teach about God and his people. God's blessing and obedient nation as a nation was meant to be a picture to outside nations. Israel was always meant to be a little picture, a little live, imperfect demo 
a temporary image of what ultimately it will be like to be God's people in his kingdom. The reason why that blessing had to be taken away in the face of disobedience is because then the picture wouldn't work anymore. The national testimony wouldn't communicate what God was trying to communicate to the surrounding nations if Israel was idolatrous and unfaithful. Ultimately, there is going to be a material blessing in the fullness for God's people. It's the new heavens, the new earth. We've already talked about it in the service. Israel in the promised land was supposed to be a preview. It was a trailer, a picture of the greater reality of the new heavens and the new earth. But God's people are not organized as a nation anymore. There was a transition that happened when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. As we remembered in the Lord's Supper, the old picture gave way to reality beginning. Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial ministry. He died to atone for their sin. And his people were called to exist not as a nation in one geographical location anymore, but as assemblies of people in every nation. They're called to gather in those nations and to testify to their neighbors to his ultimate rule over all of creation, his coming judgment and the salvation that he offers in his own life, death, and resurrection. So now God's people are organized in churches, assemblies, little clusters within nations without political or geographical jurisdiction. And the church, the gathered people of God, is called the nation of priests in the New Testament. And the church is not the ruler of a particular land that God has entrusted it to as a symbol of heaven. The church are exiles, living in a land not our own, as we wait for our heavenly home. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will be perfectly obedient and we will enjoy the perfect blessings that come with it. But what God promises us now, what he promises the church in this time, is not material prosperity in response to obedience. There was never, even in the old covenant, a one-to-one correspondence between material prosperity and obedience at the individual level. Obedience in this passage is a corporate call to the tithe, which was chosen for its symbolic weight. Obedience here is a call for the people as a whole to come to Yahweh with faith, allegiance, and joy. There was no mechanical trade of good works for prosperity in Malachi 3, and there's no mechanical trade now. In the Old Testament, God promised to sustain and exalt the nation as a corporate witness, as a whole, if they were obedient. God promises to sustain and exalt the church as a witness today, If you trust Jesus, if you are publicly loyal to him, if you enjoy him, he promises to bless your life together and your witness. He will build you up. He will draw you closer to him. He will cleanse you from your sins. You will grow in holiness and knowledge of God and you will increase in your joy of him. If you recognize Jesus as Lord of all and so give of your time and your money and your energy to the church, to the work, to the difficulties and joys of being God's gathered people together, Jesus will bless that. Your life together as Christian Fellowship Church will flourish. Not necessarily materially, but it will flourish spiritually. Your witness will increase so that it becomes visible to outsiders. There's something special about that community. Look at how they love and thrive, even when they are rejected, even when they suffer materially. Look at what trust and loyalty and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ results in. How do we apply this? Your call to spend the first and the best of your time, money, and energy on Jesus in such a way that expresses trust, public allegiance, and joy in Christ. So even if you give but you do it in a way that undercuts those three, that really isn't the tithe. If you give only of your excess money and your ex- of your excess energy and of your excess time in a way that really costs you nothing, that requires no faith from you, that's not the tithe. 
If when time and energy and money become tight, you cut church, ministry, fellowship, then you aren't tithing, regardless of whatever relative number you're giving. If you give in a way that does not joyfully participate in the ministry that you give to, that's still not the tithe. Giving should indeed support the ministry. Pastors are supposed to have an official teaching ministry that parallels the priests of the Old Testament. Paul the Apostle makes that connection. Just as the Levites were supported, so the church should support its dedicated teachers and ministers. So they can all benefit together from God's word being taught. Right? In 1 Corinthians we read, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Right? So, so you ought to give so that Sunday mornings could happen. Right? Part of that is paying the pastor. But if you help make the church happen financially and you don't participate fully in the life of the church, that's not tithing. One of the reasons you need Sunday worship, there are many, but the one in focus in the tithe is so that you have a place to demonstrate your public allegiance to Jesus. If you are providing for the space but not actually demonstrating public allegiance to Jesus, it's not the tithe. Providing for the church is not enough. If all you're doing is signing a check and dropping it in the offering plate so that Lucas could have a paycheck, the rent is paid, equipment can be bought, even if you're giving 99% of your income to the church, if you aren't publicly allied to Jesus with your time and your church participation, it's not the time. You need to give in such a way that demonstrates allegiance to Jesus. You need to show up visibly so the world knows, yeah, I'm not available on Sunday. I spend my time and my money in such a way that church is the priority. And it is all my joy. Another part of the reason for church is so that you have a public place to experience and uh, enjoy a foretaste of heavenly joy. A place for you to enjoy giving your trust and allegiance to God. Jesus will be honored and glorified by that. You need to spend the first tenth, the best of your time, your energy, your money on the ministry and the people. Together, you're building each other up. Together, teaching each other, enjoying Jesus' goodness through each other. God is calling you to more. He's calling you to make sure the rent is paid, to make sure Lucas is paid, but he's calling you to more than that. He's calling you to trust him to provide for you, to show up publicly, and to enjoy him. So spend your money liberally in hospitality. Spend your money liberally in buying books, good books, resources, to help you know, help others know God better. Don't worry about the cost, and you're like, oh, we're going to do a book study. Who cares about how expensive the books are? I'll buy all the books for all of you. Spend your time on money and on conferences, visiting missionaries. Oh, what the travel expenses? Well, go do it. Right? Those are good things. Don't just mindlessly give a check. Actively plan for how you can order your life around Christ. I mean, that stuff should literally be at the top of budget considerations and calendar considerations. Spend your time and energy and money liberally on fellowshipping with each other, studying God's word together. Uh, going out, uh, whatever church events you have, be at all of them. Put that at the top of the calendar. Contribute. Make sure they're awesome. Go out to dinner. Be an encouragement or an accountability partner to someone who needs it. T- give that time of your week. Pray together. Disciple each other. It takes time and energy and money to do those things. But plan for the best of you to go to Christ. Make it clear to the watching world who you belong to and you savor every second of it. Older established folks, you open up your schedule, you chill out for dinner with someone who's younger, you go get something really good to eat, you read a book together, you go to Bible studies, you go to book studies, you start book studies, give to the benevolence fund, you help the needy, you identify ministries that are worth your individual support, whether they be something you can actively serve in, or maybe it's not, you can't serve in it, but you can give financially. God does not promise material prosperity in return for this. 
He does not promise no suffering in return for this. But he does promise to provide for this, to bless this, and to pave the way for ultimate prosperity in the new heavens and the new earth. We don't earn anything with our faith, but Jesus does bless our faith by preserving us through this life and eventually giving us the fullness of the heavenly life to come. And here's how Jesus summarized the whole issue in Luke, right? This is basically a New Testament paraphrase of Malachi 3, 6-12. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after those things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So if you want a specific application, here's a really, really specific one. Just an example. You don't have to do this specifically, but consider it. I don't know if you have a regular potluck. Do you have a regular potluck? I don't know if you have a regular If you do, you can have, start a regular potluck or an irregular one. Then plan to be at potluck. You skip other things, right? You forget other ways you can spend your Sunday afternoon or Friday evening whenever you plan potluck. And you let your outside friends know you're busy. I publicly set aside that time for Jesus. And you go buy something really, really nice for potluck. You don't worry about the money, right? You set aside that money for Jesus. Maybe you look up the upcoming sermon text, and every day you take the time to read and pray through the sermon text by yourself or together with your family. You don't worry about that energy and time. You set aside that energy for Jesus. Let the laundry go. The house can be a bit messy. Maybe you make a special recipe that requires you to wake up early Sunday morning. You get started on it. So you get up at 6 a.m. and you throw the food in the crock pot, the oven, or the smoker. And then you spend the time before service. You pray for the church members and for the worship service that's going to happen in a few hours. And then you come, you worship Jesus, you sing to Jesus, you pray to Jesus, you listen to Jesus, and then you stay after, and you enjoy really good food together with Jesus' bride, your church family. You discuss the sermon, you challenge each other, you encourage each other, you rejoice together, you build each other up in faith and hope and love. You just come and you rejoice, you enjoy Jesus, you eat your tithe in his presence. God promises to bless that. He promises to provide for that type of life together. He promises to strengthen your church through that to strengthen you individually, spiritually, to increase your witness, your competence, your Christ-likeness, so that you'll be better evangelists, better heavenly outposts. God draws near to that type of life together as a purifying fire, burning away all your sin, making you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. He does not change. So on that basis, he invites you, turn from your sinful ways, test Jesus, bring the full tithe. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the purifying fire of your word. And we do ask now that you would uh, encourage us, your people, to trust you, to test you, to give of ourselves, our time, our money, our energy, so that church can happen and that we would be here participating, enjoying, showing the world uh, that you are who you are, that you are worth everything. We ask that you would be glorified in the life of Christian Fellowship Church, that you would bless their life together, build them up, strengthen their witness, be glorified by all that happens here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond together in a song?